Under the Tartan Sky, Episode 60, produced 13 March 2019. They stand 30 meters high and weigh 300 tons each. The Kelpies are very possibly the best-known public art sculptures in Scotland. Years in the making, they're the centerpiece of the 740-acre Helix Eco Park, where they also guard the canal link that connects the Firth of Forth with the River Clyde. I'm Glenn Moyer. The Kelpies are the work of Glasgow-born sculptor Andy Scott and are just one of his dozens of public and private commissions in Scotland and around the globe. In a moment, we'll learn more about the Kelpies and the man who created them with my guest, sculptor Andy Scott. That's coming up here under the Tartan Sky. Scotland offers many things to many people. Its history is filled with stories of great leaders like William Wallace and Robert the Bruce, of battles like Bannockburn and Culloden. Its culture includes whiskey and tartan, castles and clans. It's a land of great literature, invention and innovation, of sweeping vistas and great glens and shimmering lochs. For millions around the world, Scotland is key to their ancestry, to who they are, to where they've come from. It's a haven for wildlife and a paradise for sport. Indeed, Scotland has something for almost everyone. In 2019, why not plan to visit and discover for yourself just what Scotland has to offer for you? Andy Scott is a homegrown Scottish figurative sculptor, best known as creator of the Kelpies. He was born and raised in Glasgow and is a graduate of the Glasgow School of Art. Beyond Scotland, his work can be found in locations around the globe, including Ireland, England, and Australia. His first work, The Heavy Horse, sits alongside the M8 motorway connecting Glasgow and Edinburgh. It's been estimated as many as 450 million people have seen his tribute to Scotland's draft horse, the Clydesdale. Yes, for those who don't know, the Clydesdales are a Scottish breed and worked on the crofts of Scotland and as transport animals, pulling barges along the Central Belt Canals for commerce in industrial Scotland. Hauling a wagon load of beer through various parades in America, then, is, by contrast, pretty light duty for these majestic beasts. Scott has created more than 70 works of art to date, but is best known for the Kelpies, the largest equine sculptures in the world. The Kelpie is a mythical, shape-shifting water horse believed to inhabit the lochs and rivers of the Scottish Highlands. Scott's Kelpies opened to the public in 2014, and instead of mythical beasts are, not surprisingly, also a tribute to, and in fact were modeled on living Clydesdales. In the five years since they opened, the Kelpies have drawn millions of visitors to the Falkirk and Grangemouth area in Scotland's central belt and contributed millions of pounds to the local economy. They are sculpture superstars. 
Scott now lives here in the USA, and he graciously spoke to me from his home in Philadelphia. Before asking about the Kelpies and his other works, I wanted to know more about his early years, so I asked when he first knew he wanted to be a sculptor. I applied and was accepted for Glasgow School of Art uh, straight from high school. So um, back in those days at Glasgow School of Art, in the first year, you the students were uh, given a given a sort of a two week or a three week course in, in most of the disciplines. And when I uh, tackled sculpture for the first time, I realised that that was for me and uh, made the decision to apply for the sculpture department and did so and. Here I am all those years later. So really, I guess it was uh, my first uh, tackling of the, the subject in, in art school that fired up my enthusiasm. In doing my research about you, I know that you grew up in Glasgow, and I was reading where your father used to take you through the city, and yeah. I was always telling you, look up, look at the yeah. architecture, look yeah. at the sculptures. Did that have an impact on you at an early age? Oh, definitely. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, very much so. My father was uh, a draftsman in building companies, and uh he was very aware of the architectural history of Glasgow and, and the fantastic Victorian and Edwardian heritage of the city. And as kids, uh, myself and my, my, my brother and sister were uh, often told <laughs> to, to appreciate what the city had. And, and I guess it's sunk in from that early age. And it's something that even though I don't live in Glasgow anymore, I'm still fantastically proud of that city's uh, architectural heritage and statuary and if, I, if I'm honest, I, I wish I wish some other folks in the city, although I have to say that they're doing much better these days, but for decades it was uh, kind of neglected, but it's uh, really on the up now, and uh, it's a beautiful city when you start to look at the detail. Yeah, Glasgow at a time, of course, it built its reputation on shipbuilding, and the time was very blue-collar. Um, yeah. Many people, in fact, described it as a rather gritty town. Yeah. Um, and and I'm, I'm wondering, did that... Growing up in that atmosphere, did that also have an influence on you? I mean, you work in galvanized steel and bronze. Yeah. Um, is, is there a history between you and the city and, and the background of shipbuilding? Does all of that come into play in your work? I, I guess it does. I mean, uh, it's not something that, that really was was co- a conscious uh, influence. Uh-huh. But when but growing up in a city, you know, we, we lived on the south side. Well, I was born in Springburn, which is where they used to build all the locomotives. And then... We moved to the south side when I was just a little kid, and uh, uh, you know, not not beside the shipyards by any manner of means, but you were always aware of the clanging in the distance from Howden's factories or, or the yards down the road, the shipyards. So, yeah, I guess there always was a presence of heavy industry in the background, and I, I, I suppose it couldn't help but trickle through into my uh, way of thinking and and I guess the respect that I had for the for the great sort of industrial workforce of the city. Um, so you know, it's not a subcon- it's not a conscious thing. It's not like I would go down to the shipyards and and you know draw <laughs> or sketch or anything like that. You know, uh, by the time I was going into the art school, they were on really on a slippery slope uh, towards you know finishing. So it was something I was aware of. I guess it was a subliminal or, or a subconscious influence, but something that definitely ha- seems to have trickled down. You're not the only person who said it, and and it certainly seems to have uh, found its way through my, my sculpture. Why the choice of galvanized steel and, and bronze? Uh, uh, those are some rather unusual... Well, um, galvanized, galvanized steel is cheaper than stainless. To be honest, uh, working in mild steel, I, I, I was drawn to steel work when I was in college uh, at the art school. And uh, 
I, I guess I was kind of seduced by the kind of big abstract constructive constructed sculptures of people like Anthony Caro and Calder and the likes. But then I went through a kind of a uh, a moment of reckoning, I guess, and realised that all that abstract stuff wasn't for me. I didn't like the way it was so self-referential and, and, and fairly uh, uh, inward-looking. Uh, I was drawn to making artwork that had a more mass appeal, which took me down a figurative route, which took me towards clay modelling and subsequently casting. And then as time went on, I began to hone my, my old uh, steelworking techniques towards combining them uh, and actually making figurative sculpture from steel, of course, steel has to uh, withstand the elements, and as I said earlier on, stainless steel is is horrifically expensive for sculpture making, and galvanized steel is a more uh, doable uh, solution to the material restraints, and it's kind of become my uh, you know chosen medium. It's something I'm well known for, and as I say, most of the pieces are galvanized because stainless is so difficult to work with and so expensive. Not many clients will will go for it, unfortunately. The bronze work is quite different. The bronze is uh, modelled in clay first and then cast. It's a more, uh, it's, it's, it's a very different dexterity involved in creating those sculptures. I don't do so many of them, partly because uh, you might say I'm, I'm a victim of my own portfolio. <laughs> I'm so well known. For, I'm so well known for doing the steel work. People keep asking me to do it, and I keep saying yes. <laughs> so you know, there's the kind of story between the two. I guess it stems from my. Uh, the genre or the or the, the the figurative element of my work and and find the best way to make that real and those are the materials that that suited me. You talk about the figurative nature of your work and kelpies were the first of your work that I became aware of when I was making my first trip to Scotland uh, back in 2014. Am I correct in thinking your first work or, or certainly I guess maybe your breakout work was the heavy horse? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, and that was in '97. Uh, so, I, I finished, I graduated in '86, and then I did a postgraduate at the art school, uh, which was one, a, a kind of uh, an extra year of uh, honing my skills, if you like, and then left uh, out into the big bad world. And for the pre- for the following 10 years, I, I tried my hands at all sorts of things. I, uh, I you know, as, as all young graduate art, art students do or used to do. I um, I did props for the opera and the ballet and, and, and uh, did all sorts of things, thinking back, outdoor events, pyrotechnics, all sorts of weird and wonderful things and uh, be- began to actually get more and more involved in interior design and fitting out, you know, architectural fit-outs and hotels and bars and ended up running quite a successful little business uh, along those lines. In amongst all that, I was trying to build sculpture, and uh, in '97, I was asked to submit a design which uh, for the, for what became the heavy horse. I won that commission, and that really uh, uh, let me sort of stand proud and say, "Look, this is what I'm really here to do, and this is what I'm capable of." And luckily, uh, a few commissions began to flow in after that piece. So yeah, the heavy horse is still there, still standing proud at the entrance to Glasgow, and. Yes, if I had a penny for everybody who said they knew they were almost home when they saw my horse, I'd be a rich man. <laughs> well, I know one of the things I read the other day about you was uh, you made the comment that you were driving along listening to the radio one time and the uh, yeah. announcer mentioned yeah. that traffic. traffic was backed up to the horse and you said, yeah. I've made it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, you know you're a, you know, you know you've made the big time and you become a traffic, uh, a traffic jam icon. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things that has impressed me about your work, the more I've looked into it, um, of course, seeing the Kelpies, uh, and they are massive. They're 30, 35 meters tall. Yeah. Um, and, and scale is, um, your artwork is not the type that goes on a pedestal in a museum or, or in somebody's home. I mean, you work in massive scale. 
Why is that? What's the secret well, behind that? Well, I, again, I, I respond to the briefs that are given to me. And um, you, when you become known for doing larger scale pieces, that's what, what people get in touch for. And, mm-hmm. uh, and, and I work in the public realm. Uh, from the outset, I was very keen to have my work seen by the widest audience. And, and that obviously tapped into uh, what you might call the zeitgeist, if you like, at the end of the 90s and the start of the 2000s, when there was a big upswing in interest in public artworks across Scotland and the rest of the UK. I, I guess I guess maybe I was instrumental in making that happen. But uh, there was a, a, an increased awareness of how prominent public artworks could really enhance local environments so, um, you know, I was approached to do quite a few pieces. And I'll be honest, you know, that the scale is only dependent on the budget and the willingness of the client. So if there's only a certain amount of money on the table, you don't get something so big. Um, I do have to say that, that galvanized steel is a reasonably cost-effective material uh, to use. And it does, it can result in quite large objects uh, for, a, for a reasonable, you know, what you might call a reasonable uh, cost base. Um, but it's, it's, you know, there's a, a danger. You see a lot of sculptors get drawn down this thing of making it big just, be, you know, just because it's macho or, or whatever. And it kind of makes me despair sometimes, you know. It, it, it's to do with the setting. It's to do with the environment. And it should only be as big as the environment requires. In the case of the Kelpies, the biggest ones, I mean, you're competing against a, a massive, you know, you've, you've been there. It's like in a floodplain of the River Forth. It's yeah. the... It's big sky country with the Ockle Hills in the distance, and and those objects had to be that size to make the impact that we wanted to from the highway and from the surrounding landscape. But uh, other pieces, obviously, they're much more modest because they they are for a, a little housing development in some corner of a city, you know. So scale, scale isn't just about you know being big and macho. It, it depends on what the the site requires. You mentioned the um, the fact that your art is public and. Uh, and as I was saying, it isn't the type of art you typically will see in a museum or in someone's individual home. A number of your pieces, the Kelpies, obviously, Aria, the Heavy Horse, mm. uh, are, are all essentially set just off the motorway. Yeah, uh, I, I think I read where it's estimated 450 million people have seen Aria or maybe the Heavy Horse. I forget, but probably both. To be honest, they're both probably. on the main highway. There's no escape. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> both beside, they're both beside the main highways, and uh, one one between Glasgow and Edinburgh, the other one in all all roads north. So yeah, they're they're very very public pieces. And even the Kelpies, um, I've yeah. visited the site and seen them, but I've also been driving by and suddenly go, oh, there they are. You sure, know, yeah, they, yeah. And as huge as they are, they seem to pop up like out of nowhere almost. Um, but I guess where I'm going with this is, is that kind of exposure really exposure to, to art? I mean, driving by it at 70 miles per hour as opposed to seeing a piece in a museum or in a gallery? Well, I think more so. Because you you know they're they're there for everybody to see. You have to make a conscious decision to go into the gallery, and uh, I, I think that's where quite a lot of contemporary art perhaps fails in that it's really appealing to, unfortunately, what you might call a, a more elite audience. Um, so I my pieces I think are there. Most of my pieces I have to say I do private commissions, but most of the public pieces are by their nature in very prominent places. The fact that you're going past at seventy miles an hour makes it. Uh, arguably more challenging because you have to make a visual impression and hopefully a favourable impression, often at haste, but then more often or not on frequent viewing. So, you know, the piece 
I think should be recognisable instantly. So I know that's something that the Highways Police Department agree with <laughs> because you don't want to cause people, you know, quite seriously, you don't want to cause people any confusion that they were going to slow down or be distracted. But the important thing is that the piece uh, withstands multiple viewings from, you know, people who are commuting on a daily basis or, or uh, as well as people who see it just once at speed. And I think that's quite an interesting and challenging element of, of doing works on beside highways and such prominent places. Do you think people come away with um, with differing impressions? The person who drives by the heavy horse, for example, on a commute daily versus the person who perhaps uh, drives by it on their one-time trip to Scotland. Uh, do those two individuals go away with a different perception of your art? I, I, I'm not sure I can answer that one for you. I think you'd need to ask the viewers. I, I do know from personal experience that I've had many favorable comments from both uh, constituents, if that's the right phrase, um, frequent viewers and, and one-offs. I think the nice thing about the Kelpies in particular is so many people, when they have seen them once, they then make a decision to go and actually visit the Helix Park and see them up close. Um, I guess my job is just to create a good impression for both, and, and I do my best to, to, to make sure that happens. You've said in an interview earlier that your art form uh, was at least partially inspired by the painting of uh, Chuck Close. Yeah. Um, tell me a little bit about that. Why, why do you make that comparison? Yeah, I remember seeing a show of Chuck Close's, uh, um, this was uh, many, many years ago before he unfortunately fell from grace, but anyway, uh, many years ago in New York, and, and uh, if you, for those who are not familiar, uh, Chuck Close's paintings are, are, are super real portraits, and when you go up close to the canvases, uh, they're in fact composed of thousands upon thousands of tiny little individual pictograms and, and uh like uh, pixels almost, and they're done by hand, or they were done by hand, uh, old school, if you like. And I was absolutely fascinated, captivated by the way that he could capture uh, the likeness of these people, almost to a photographic degree, and yet on close inspection they were made of these myriads of, of tiny little uh, individual elements. And it stayed with me after that uh, trip, you know, I don't know, maybe that must have been 25 years ago or something in New York. And it stuck with me, and, and I began to think maybe there was a way using the very hard and unforgiving material of steel that I could somehow capture that sort of crossover between abstraction uh, and figurativism, uh, a figurative art, I should say. And uh, I began to experiment by using that sort of three-dimensional mosaic uh, technique that, you, that you're familiar with in, in some of those big sculptures. And it, and it seems to have worked, you know, so far so good. I still enjoy doing them. But that was that was the reference point from those original uh, Chuck Close paintings that I saw all those years ago. And how difficult is it working in, as you say, a, a cold, hard substance, galvanized steel, and creating something that ultimately almost is, for lack of a better term, is lifelike? Yeah, look, I, that's something I can't really, I, again, without meaning to sound... Uh, uh, too precious. It's something I, I really I don't know how it works. You know, it's it, I, I just do it. Um, I guess that's where the the art comes in, in a sense. I have certainly have honed the technique over the years, and and there are little dexterous tricks of the trade, if you like, in inverted commas that that, that make things come to life. Uh, I've seen other people try it, and and without meaning to sound big headed, I've seen other people try it and fail. Um, there's there's a, a subtlety to it. It's to do with the the flow of the steel plates that that, that can create a, dyna, a dynamism and a and a living feel. Um, many people use uh, computers and and uh, fabrication 
uh, techniques, whereas I do everything by hand, uh, with the exception of the very biggest. And I think it's that hand-built intuitive thing that, that by its very nature breathes life into it. I couldn't make it mechanical if I tried. And I'm using the same skills that I would apply to working with clay or with doing drawings. It's a dexterous thing. It's, it's, I'm not going to say it's God-given, but it's, it's, it's just it's in me and, and, and it's just the way they come out. And I don't really analyze it too much <laughs> in case I lose it. <laughs> um, I, I don't know. It's just, it's just the way they come out. And I'm, sometimes I surprise myself. <laughs> sometimes I infuriate myself, to be honest, because it's not always easy. Um, my wife and I will often have strange conversations in restaurants where I'll, I'll be sitting saying, you know, I'm just not happy with it. I'm just going to chop the head off and start again. And the people at the next table are looking at us thinking, my God, what's this guy doing? You know? uh, so, uh, you know, it's, it's intuitive. I think one of the elements um, is that I, I don't work from any technical drawings. I don't do any. I'm, I'm not capable of doing any CAD or any of these contemporary uh, engineering or, or, or drafting techniques. I make it all up from out of my head. I do a couple of sketches to show the client, and I, and I make it from there, and and that's it. So there's a great deal of trust in the in the client's behalf, uh, and uh, a great deal of. Um, almost what would you call it a bravado if you like on my behalf that i will be able to do these things and somehow i do it's it's just the way it's just the way it happens that's what makes it art you know you, you kind of left into my next question which was was going to be can you sort of walk us through the process of how a project goes from um i guess inspiration what's your original idea and, and yeah, then how yeah. do you go through the process to where it ends up as the final sculpture what, what are the steps sure. involved uh, every project's different, uh, which isn't a good answer for you. <laughs> but every project is different, and, and, and it depends on the client or, or the, the, the remit in, at the outset. Um, usually I'll look at the perhaps the social history of the area or the geography or, or sometimes an Im- imagery or iconography will spring to mind that is th- thrown up by the area uh, that the sculptures to inhabit. Maybe it'll come from the people of that area. Maybe sometimes they, they'll ask me specifically for a particular theme. And, and then usually what happens is I'll do a series of sketches. And these are literally little arty little pencil or, or ink sketches. I do a couple of drawings of the, the proposal in situ. And I'm pleased to say usually that's enough for most clients to understand what I'm going to try and do. And, and, and then making it in the steel, I, I fabricate what you might describe as a, as a linear um skeleton or 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 three-dimensional drawing which forms the the basis or the 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 armature the 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 former for the sculpture and i then apply the steel plates over the top of that and gradually build it up and uh, layer the steel and and uh work in the muscles and and the, the all that time I'm concentrating, as I said before, on the flow of the plates to make sure it creates a dynamic uh, visual uh, impression. And uh, I, I, and then I work my way through that. Of course, in the process, you've got to deal with, like, how do you lift the thing? How are you going to get it in the galvanizing tanks? How are you going to fit it on a truck? All those engineering things, which are the, the, the real uh, nuts and bolts of it. Um, and before you know it nine or ten months later there's a finished sculpture you know so but as i say everyone's different i'm making it obviously much simpler to, to answer the question but it's some projects are more challenging uh and that, that of course only is the the steel work the the clay the bronze the cast bronze pieces are a slightly different technique but uh that's how the steel ones come together it's it's just pencil i i, I don't do any contemporary engineering 
the, the difference being, I hasten to add, though, is on, on a, a project the size of the Kelpies or the other one was the Beacon of Thanksgiving over in Belfast, which is such a scale that I couldn't possibly have done them on my own. And because of the engineering technicalities and, and challenges, both of them involved outside fabrication companies and structural engineers. And I'm pleased to say in both instances, uh, struck up a fantastic rapport with those uh, parties and, and the end results were um, as close to the original intent and my original models and maquettes as, as could possibly have been achieved. So I've had great experience in working with other parties, but most pieces I, I like to do still with my own bare hands, as it were. Um, I've still got a few left in me for an old fella, you know. <laughs> <laughs> How much time does a project like this take? I, I was reading again where um, I think one of your newest projects, which we'll talk about in a few minutes, uh, Lullaby, um, that project in Princess Street Gardens now took about four years to bring to fruition. Yeah. And I think I, I, I remember you making a comment in an interview I watched about the Kelpies where you did the original drawings like eight years prior to yeah. them actually yeah. uh, being in place. Um, That's correct, yeah. Is, so is that typical to, for us? No, no, no. I'm pleased to say no. You couldn't have gone out of business years ago if that was the case. No, well, I was going to ask, do you work on multiple projects at one time yeah. if they do take well, that the, kind of time? The answer to that is yes, I do. I like to have two or three things overlapping in the studio, partly because it keeps me on my toes and stops me getting bored, but also because – you know, at the end of the day, it's a business. I've got to keep cash flow happening to pay for the rent and the rates, the overheads, all the materials, all the usual stuff, that, the, the sort of uh, unfortunate side of it that needs to be dealt with. So there's always a, a an overlap of projects. But in terms of timing, some projects do take a long time because, uh, as is the case with that little bronze you mentioned, Lullaby, it was a particularly emotive and, and delicate uh, sculpture to do given the, the, the subject matter and it and it demanded a lot of uh, interaction with with parents groups and, and and other things which by its nature took time so that particular one we just had to go with the flow and and, and it eventually it came together and was as you might have seen quite a success well, a very successful sculpture the bigger ones like the kelpies you know we could have done the kelpies in two and a half years start to finish but we don't live in a perfect world, and uh, despite the best intentions of everybody, a project like that's on that scale uh, built into a major um, environmental regeneration project, which is the Helix Park, which you'll have seen uh, when you were in Scotland. That brings with it all sorts of politics and finance and lawyers and all sorts of stuff that goes on behind the scenes and sadly drags on and on and on and on. Uh, and that for the artist and for the fabrication guys can be incredibly frustrating, but it's the nature of the beast and we just need to to grit our teeth and, and get on with it. Most projects, I'm pleased to say, whether it's private clients or corporate, even some civic projects uh, tend to be much quicker than that. And, and often we can get things moving, you know, maybe in a year, just over a year or so, usually uh, they can go from start to finish. I was going to ask you about that too, because your art does, being public art does sometimes require public funding. And that usually has to bring, brings with it, as you said, politics and council approvals, mm. et cetera. Yeah, um, yeah. What do you say? Because I'm sure you've heard the argument when people say, my gosh, whatever the amount is, that's a lot of money to spend on a piece of art that could be put to better use for housing, for streets and roads, for uh, hospitals. As an artist, what's your response to those kinds of arguments? Well, my first response is don't do it then, uh, <laughs> to be quite blunt. You know, I've had that I've had that thrown at me by various people in the media and I'm mm-hmm. like, well, just just don't bother commissioning it then. Don't waste my time and don't get yourself don't get your panties in a knot, do you know what I mean? Um but the tr- the truth is that we can 
that the hardest thing to explain to people who in Scotland we would call them the naysayers is that uh, intangible feeling of pride and uh, and uh, a sense of place that these things can can create you know and I'm lucky enough that over my career I've, I've cited public art in some previous how would I describe them uh, challenging parts of Glasgow and, and other cities in Scotland where They'd been overlooked for years, and for them to suddenly have their own artwork in their own environment, which fuels a feeling of pride and and uh, uh, local uh, dignity, which has sadly been remiss or, or missing from, uh, is a wonderful thing. And actually, when they start to look at the costs and figure out how much it costs to actually build these things and get them there, it turns out that actually they're not very expensive and. The other thing is, of course, especially with a bigger project like the Kelpies, is the uh, the fact that they employed hundreds of people, both in the fabrication and now that they're there, there's dozens of people involved as tour guides and working in the visitor centre, and they've brought in four and a half million visitors, all of whom are spending pounds and dollars in, in, in the, the local area. So, you know, they've, they've far, far exceeded their original uh, cost in terms of the benefit to the local in, in hard in hard pounds and pence or dollars and cents and dollars, you know. Um, but, you know, look, at the end of the day, if, if somebody says to me, listen, we're going to commission your sculpture, but we're going to have to shut down a nursery or, or we can't, you know, don't do it. I'm, that's not what I'm here for. I'm, I'm only going to get involved in a project if they want to do it and if the funding is clear and there's no ambivalence about it. You know, life's too short. I'm not, I'm not going to argue, defend that that type of thing. Uh, public art has its role, and, and, and I think it, it can be a tremendously invigorating and uplifting experience for people, and uh, that, that's why they hire me. And if they don't want to do it, then don't do it. You know. Fair enough, and uh, quite an honest answer, if I may say so. No, thank you. I mean, it's something, as you can tell, you know, I've, I've had that thrown at me before. And, and I, I have to say, not just in the UK, I, I did a lot of work in Australia. And it's just like, it, it, it frustrates me, as you can tell, you know, when you when you see how other funding is misused and misappropriated in uh, city and, and governments around the world, it's, you know, people sometimes need to get a grip. Uh, uh, anyway, sorry, I've gone on too long. <laughs> <laughs> that, no, that's quite all right. Um I want to talk a little bit about the Kelpies because that's your art that I am most familiar with, having visited them. And so often when I Google Andy Scott on the uh, on the computer and do an internet search, it always comes up as um, you know the sculptor of the iconic Kelpies. The Kelpies were certainly not your first piece of art. Um, and they were uh, they're amongst, I guess, some of the more recent pieces. Uh, and yet that seems they seem to be the piece that you are most publicly identified with. Why do you mm-hmm. think that is, and does that concern you in any way? No, I, I don't think it, it. It doesn't concern me. Uh, it, it's just down to the sheer scale. They're, they're colossal. They're three hundred tons each. They're hundred feet, thirty meters. They're just huge, and uh, you know they're bound to have uh, a very far-reaching and, and, and big impact. And yeah, it, it's what it is. It doesn't trouble me particularly. Uh, they're a very uh, nice calling card to have. You know. Um, uh, there's not many sculptors in their careers will, will ever be able to achieve something like that, and I'm tremendously honoured that I was able to do so, especially in my home, my native country. You know, um, it can sometimes be a little frustrating, if I'm honest. It's like what you you know that that uh, in musical terms, it's like you know uh, the Joshua Tree by U2 or something. It was like difficult next album. How are you going to top that? How are you going to top that one? You know, it's, right. it is a bit difficult. Um, 
you know, in truth, my career has gone has gone on very well. Uh, it took a bit of a dip after the Kelpies, interestingly enough, because of their sheer scale. I think it puts you know created an impression that I was only involved or wanted to be involved in such colossal projects. But but things roll on, and one job leads to another. And I'm pleased to say, as you, as you'll have seen from the website, there's plenty of other projects have have followed on. I don't know if I'll ever do something on the on the scale of the Kelpies again. I'll be honest, I don't know if I want to do something on the scale of the Kelpies again. Um, but uh, Actually, I do. If I'm honest, I do. But uh, I think uh, we would need to revisit the way that the the uh, management of a project like that would, would take shape. Uh, you live and learn, shall we say. <laughs> um, but no, I, I, look, it doesn't bother me. I think something like that, I'm very, very proud of them. The effect they've had in, in Scotland and the UK in terms of uh, cultural tourism, you know, it's just been fantastic. And in some ways, to revert back to your previous question about value for money, you know, it speaks for itself. They, they've They've more than covered the cost uh, in terms of uh, social impact and, and especially the feeling of uh, local pride in the towns of Falkirk and Grangemouth where they, where they sit over in Scotland. Yeah. I don't know if this was unusual for you or not, but you have sort of a thing for horses and we won't get too deeply into yeah. that. Uh, but I was, uh, again, reading to research for our chat and the Kelpies, of course, are uh, a mythical creature that had the ability to shapeshift in, in a sense and could take on the, the shape of a horse. But your Kelpies are not just necessarily a tribute to a mythical beast. No. They no, actually no. have a deeper meaning, particularly to the community where they sit. Tell me a little sure. about that. Yeah. They, I inherited the title of the Kelpies uh, to go back in the history of the project. The chief, the former chief engineer of uh, uh, British Waterways, Scotland, as, as they were then known, um, came up with the theme of the Kelpies and the title, and uh, I was asked to uh, tackle it as a as a subject. And um, I gave considerable uh, thought to the sort of mythical connotations of the Kelpies title, and decided it just wasn't for me. <laughs> it wasn't for me, and it wasn't for Central Scotland because, as you probably know, it's a myth that relates to the Highlands, particularly mm. the lochs and glens of the western the Western Highlands and islands of Scotland. And yet here we were right bang in this in the heart of the central belt which is a very industrial or post-industrial area so i uh certainly was happy to live with the title of the kelpies and have that subtext there but for me they were much more to do with the the industrial and agricultural heritage of the area and the more i looked into it the more i wanted to create something that would be a tribute to the to the working horses of scotland and the clydesdale being the most uh, well-known breed and of course, the fact that they straddle the Forth and Clyde Canal, uh, the original form of locomotion for the canal barges would have been heavy horses. So it began to go in a completely different direction for me. And and the more I got my teeth into it, I, I'm pleased to say my colleagues at uh, Scottish Canals uh, embraced my thinking. And and I think George Ballinger, uh, bless him, finally forgave me for, for taking things in a very different direction. <laughs> he was a fantastic fellow, and I'm, I'm glad to see uh, we were still on good terms. Um, but yeah, it really became much more of a, a, a subject matter which I felt was relevant to the local area rather than that kind of mythical, wifty-wafty, hippie, uh, hoofty-choofty Scottish thing, <laughs> which has its place, you know. And, and actually, you know, now even now when people, some people really love to go on about that kind of mythology, that's absolutely cool, you know. I'm very, very happy with that. If, if it evokes that imagery and, and, and thought processes in people, that is fantastic. But for me, it was more to do with those... Uh, very proud, big, magnificent old Clydesdales and Shires that would have worked on the land and the and the factories in, in central Scotland. And as it turns out, um, 
the, uh, the, uh, in the 1930s, I think, the biggest horse in the world was reputed to live in Falkirk, and he actually pulled the wagons for a local soft drink company around town. He was called Carnera, and he was named after the Italian heavyweight boxing champion. And uh, this this big old Clydesdale was actually a local resident, and, and I, I just loved that love that piece of uh, synergy with it, you know, serendipity with the past that that, that that this giant horse used to live in the area. So, you know, the, the, the mythology thing was a starting point, but for me, I took it in quite a different direction. Well, and remind me, I'm making a note to myself, do not ask Andy Scott about Loch Ness and, and Nessie. <laughs> yeah, no, listen, I had all that in the beginning, you know, I would rise above that one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, in the case of the Kelpies, you actually worked with a couple of heavy horse models, did you not? Yeah. Yes, yeah. So when we, uh, the, to try and cut down a very long story, I, I made the first two maquettes speculatively in my studio in Glasgow um, on the understanding that if the lottery, the big lottery organization in the UK, if they funded it, then they would commission me to do a second set. And I'm pleased to say they were so impressed with the first set. They did commission me. We won the project money and we, we started on, on the full project. So the first stage of that was to, um, I asked Glasgow City Council, who who then owned several Clydesdale horses, if I could borrow one of the horses and, and uh, have it in the studio for the day. And I'm pleased to say they offered me two. Uh, and um, Baron and Duke, uh, Julie, trundled up in their new truck with uh, a late, lovely lady called Lorraine, who, who looked after the horses. And uh, they spent the day there in the studio. And I was able to then modify those first maquettes with those horses in the studio, just to sort of fine-tune and tweak the anatomy a little bit and, um, I guess, make them uh, less architectural and more equine, I think, might be the way to, to describe the changes. And again, I'll reference back to the idea of the flowing, the movement of the dynamic uh, of the steel plates. Uh, when I had those horses in the studio, it, it helped me get my head around which way to to uh, position the steel plates in the, in, the, in the maquettes, which were then scaled up. But it was a fantastic experience. It was one of the highlights of the whole project, having those lovely big horses in my studio and them. Uh, we subsequently met them many times at various public events over the course of the years with the Kelpies on site in Falkirk. Well, and of course, what most Americans know about Clydesdales is the, the Budweiser uh, team. Yeah. And a lot of Americans don't realize, I don't know that I realized until I began exploring my own Scottish ancestry, that the, Cl- that the Clydesdales are a Scottish horse. Exactly. And, yeah. and that was their role in back in the yeah. day was literally carrying barges, pulling barges and, and moving traffic and freight up and down the canals across absolutely, the central yeah. of Scotland. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And I can still see one of these Super Bowl adverts with the Kelpies, man. I'm telling you, it's got to happen, you know. <laughs> Get those Clydesdales over there. <laughs> uh, but no, joking aside, it is interesting over here, now that I'm based in the States, you know, the number of people who genuinely have no idea that Clydesdales, I mean, it's Clydesdale is the, is the area uh, just to the south of uh, of Glasgow, where the River Clyde Gen- uh, Right stems you know Lanarkshire it's where they were bred and they were bred for those agricultural and and uh, industrial purposes and the magnificent animals they really are I must tell you one quick short little story uh, my wife and I were in California a few years ago we were in uh, perhaps needless to say we were in a, a, a winery in California and we were standing at the bar having a little sample of each of the wines that they produced there and there was a fellow standing next to me over my shoulder he, he heard my Scottish accent and he turned around and he, and he said um, are you from Scotland and I said yeah yeah I'm, I'm here with my wife on holiday and he said oh fantastic he said my wife and I are going to Scotland in the summer and I said oh fantastic well I hope you have a great time and he says thanks very much 
he said, we're going over to see these two huge big horse sculptures which have just been installed. <laughs> and I looked at him and I, you know that way you're kind of looking around waiting for the candid camera guys to turn up? And, and, and I'm standing there and I said, well, I made those. And the guy, he just could not believe it. And we had to get mobile phones out, business cards, everything, and show that show to this fellow that we really were the people who'd made the Kelpies. And it was just wonderful. And it was such an uplifting experience to realize that these uh, – those big sculptures which had uh, taken such a toll on me over the years were actually uh, spreading out far beyond the, the, the boundaries of Scotland. Moving on to one of your uh, more recent pieces that we talked about just briefly a moment ago, and that's uh, the new piece, fairly new piece, that's been placed in the Princess Street Gardens, and that's Lullaby. Um, yeah. little, uh, this one is not one of your stainless steel pieces, but one of your bronze pieces. An incredibly sad and tragic story behind the art that perhaps many of our listeners won't be familiar with, and I don't want to go into it in detail, but um, it, it was a commission, I gather, done for as a memorial to the Morton Hall babies. Um, the yes. story, very briefly, was that a crematorium for years was burying the remains of uh, cremated children in an unmarked grave, and the parents knew nothing about it, and this scandal, if you will, came to to light many years later. Yes. And, and one of the recommendations from the, the, the study that resulted from that was uh, for a memorial. And, and out of that came, I would say it's a baby elephant, kind of, a, I, I would call it a slumping baby elephant or a sitting baby elephant, I guess. You can describe yeah. it better than I. Tell me about yeah. that project and how difficult was it to work on such an, as you said earlier, an emotive uh, piece? Yeah, that was a, it was a very difficult project, if I'm honest. Um, I, my first thing I'd like to say is how humbled and, and, and deeply honoured I was to be approached by the parents group uh, to, to encapsulate that sense of uh, loss and uh, to create something which would which, which become a focus for their memories and grief, I guess. It was a, an incredible thing to be asked. And when I was first approached, I, uh, my wife and I spoke about it and, and I, I volunteered that I would do a, a, couple, a few little sketches and that uh, if they liked one, that would be good and well. But, uh, you know, and I would do this free of charge and that uh, um, if they didn't like anything I'd come up with then, we would shake hands and move on and I would just I would give them my best shot on their behalf. But obviously such a delicate and, and difficult thing to try and encapsulate. Now, I'm pleased to say that... Uh, they came very close to a couple of designs, but the one which was was the the winner was what you've just described there, the the little baby elephant, which I call uh, lullaby. And um, my thinking there was uh, when I was speaking to the the, the, the parents group representatives that uh, there was obviously the sense of loss and the sense of memory, and I wanted to come up with something which symbolised um, that. Uh, the memories that just will, will never go away. And the idea, of course, is that elephants never forget. And the, that the idea of, a, of a, a child's toy, like a discarded toy or a, a little toy that's been left behind or perhaps lost, would somehow combine the idea of the playfulness of children, but also the sadness that goes with it and the, the feeling of loss and bereavement, but also that important thing about never forgetting. And I uh, hit on the idea of uh, embossing the surface of the, the skin of the bronze with forget-me-not flowers. So when you see the sculpture in real life uh, up close, there's it's... Uh, adorned or, or um, covered in, in hundreds of little forget-me-nots, which uh, you don't see at first, but when you go up close, you can actually see them, and it, it's quite a tactile mm. sculpture. And uh, those elements combined um, create quite a, quite a striking little sculpture. And one of the other things I was very aware of when I was talking to the parents was that um, many of them 
happily went on to have other children or previously had had other children and that those children were often left behind uh, in, in the, the very grown-up world of grieving and, and the terrible things that had happened at Morton Hall. So I was conscious of making something which little kids could relate to, as in the siblings, the brothers and sisters of those lost babies. And uh, <clears throat> yeah, it's, it's very difficult to even talk about it, to be honest. Um, <clears throat> and and to, to, to make something that, that those uh, children and, and future generations of children could relate to as almost as a play sculpture and that, that, that they could relate to it in some way that would perhaps bring happy memories of, of their little brother or sister that they, that they never knew. So uh, there was a, there was a whole load of things uh, floating about in my head and I'm pleased to say the, 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 the parents group uh, representatives were very pleased with it. And then we, uh, we were also struck with an interesting challenge and I can laugh about it that, that it took, uh, the powers that be quite a while to make the decision about the sculpture. And in the time that they did that, uh, my wife Hannah and I decided to move to Philadelphia. So it was a, a challenge to make a piece of sculpture destined for Edinburgh. And really, we, we, we really felt it was very, very important to have it made in the city of Edinburgh. So I struck up a fantastic uh, professional relationship with Powder Hall Foundry, uh, Powder Hall Bronze in, in Leith in Edinburgh. And they enlarged my maquettes and did a fantastic job uh, to sort of pull together the full-size sculpture based on all my uh, uh, original uh, models. And I worked closely. I visited the studio a couple of times while they were doing that. So it was very much a partnership in terms of the fabrication of the sculpture and enabled the parents to visit the studio to see it being made and and, uh, pulled together so they would understand the processes. And that in itself, I think, was a very... um, rewarding and, and uh, part of a healing process for, for some of the parents. They, they told me as much themselves when, when they came into the foundry and they saw the, the clay original sculpture sitting there. It was, a, it was an incredibly emotional project to be involved in and, and as I said at the beginning, you know, something I'm very, very honoured to have been part of. And, and I'm pleased to say that the Edinburgh City were, were, were fantastic in that the location they've given it is, is unbelievable. It's in Princess Street Gardens, almost immediately below Edinburgh Castle, um, if any of your listeners have been to Edinburgh, you, you'll know what I'm talking about. And for those who do go, you can't really miss it. And, and I thought it was really wonderful of the city to give such a, a very treasured and valuable piece of parkland and uh, and the city's heritage to to such an emotional and, and sensitive subject. And, and the sculpture really does look splendid there. So all in all, it was a very uh, rewarding thing to be part of. I'm back over uh, to Scotland for my fifth trip this summer, and I'm hoping I'll have a chance to to spend a little time. I have some friends in Edinburgh. I don't have any connection, of course, to Morton Hall, although surprisingly, when I was talking with a friend just a few days ago about the fact that I was going to be chatting with you, and she's the one who, who actually made me aware of the new sculpture uh, because her daughter is one of the Morton Hall babies. And Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Wow. Wow. The uh, the sculpture. She's not seen it yet. She used to live in Edinburgh. She like you now lives here in the states, but is going yeah. back this summer. And so, wow. Well, quite a- please pass on my best my best wishes to her. It's uh, it's amazing how wide that story actually uh, spread in terms of those who were affected by it, and it was kind of swept under the carpet for so many years. Um, so pass on my best wishes, please. I, I will, and, and thank you for that. I'm sure she'll appreciate it. Um, Let's get on to happier subjects then. How much of your work is your own inspiration? Something comes to mind, you go, oh, I'd like to do a sculpture of XYZ versus those that come to you with a commission and say, Mr. Yeah. Scott, we would like for you to build us this. 
Yeah, uh, not enough. Uh, actually, nah, maybe not. Maybe I shouldn't say that. Uh, the truth is, um, I'm very lucky to be approached on a fairly, fairly regular basis by um, potential commissioners. Uh, so much so, of course, I, I guess over the course of the years that uh, I, I didn't really, uh, how would I put it? I didn't really have time, I guess, or the wherewithal to to uh, apply myself to my own chosen fields of interest is, is one way to put it, I guess. But you know what? The more I've thought about that over the last couple of years, um, working to commission has become my actual source of interest and it's almost become my chosen uh, field of artistic investigation and, and development, if that makes sense. Do, do you know what I mean? Like the art for me is satisfying those clients' demands and and, and inevitably when I look back at my folio, there kind of is a a lineage of of subject matter and and uh, the genres and the techniques. So, you know, I, I don't really miss that sort of introspective approach to making art. I'm quite envious of some people who who have been able to do that. But then again, I've been very lucky to have always been commissioned uh, by people who who want my art as part of their environments or their their personal space. So, it's not something that troubles me too much. Uh, you know, every now and then some clients can be a bit challenging and demanding and sometimes you think, oh man, really? give me a break here, you know. <laughs> I, I, won't, I won't name names. But uh, and then, but some some are absolutely fantastic and very occasionally some people say, listen, do you just do something for us? In which case it's fantastic. I'm given free reign and, and um, you know, th- things fall into place. So I don't know if that's a clear answer actually. That sounds probably a little bit uh, as if I'm ducking the question, but it's uh, not something I've, I've really had to lock horns with too much. It does make sense. I, I work primarily in the publishing world, and I do advertising layout, et cetera, for clients. And, and when a client comes mm. to me and, and we work on a concept, and then I go away and, and kind of put it all together, and we come back and fine-tune it, I, I get a great deal of satisfaction out of being able to deliver yeah. the client's wishes, bring to uh, the page sure. what they envisioned yeah. about their yeah. product. And I, I would assume you're saying, essentially, you get the same sort of satisfaction. Absolutely. And, and, and the truth is that, you know, I, I have my own fields of interest in terms of the history of uh, figurative sculpture and uh, or, or equine sculpture even and and, and partly goes all the way back to Glasgow and my, my heritage and looking at Victorian Edwardian Art Deco statuary and you know and it, uh, no matter what the client comes to me with it's always going to fall into a field of interest or passion or, or artistic output which is part of me so just like you say you know you, you're helping resolve their um their brief or their their requests and it's only going to come out one way and that is through me anyway so you know it's uh, i don't really beat myself up about it too much and and i, and I really uh, you know i'm just lucky to be commissioned i still count myself very lucky that people still want to have my sculptures <laughs> <laughs> you've done over 70 sculptures do you have a favorite I know, no, I don't. It's very difficult to answer that one. That's I, I'm, I'm asked that very often, and it's it's impossible to to pick out one. Um, they all have their own moments of triumph and interesting stories, and and uh, they all demand certain uh, different um, philosophical and physical input from me. So no, it's very very difficult to pick one out more than another. Even even with the scale of the kelpies, there are some little little projects which. Uh, um, might be closer to my own heart, which are just as valuable. So no, I, I can't give you a straight answer to that. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, that's okay. <laughs> when people see your art, whether it's passing by at 70 miles an hour or on a visit to see the Kelpies or any of your other sculptures, going to, to Princess Street Gardens and seeing Lullaby or whatever piece it might be, what do you hope that they take away from the experience? 
I hope I hope I make their life more enjoyable. I, I, I hope I elevate the mundane, <laughs> um, and that I, I sometimes just hope I bring a smile to people's faces. Um, it's it's about making life a bit, making the world a better place, and 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 hopefully my sculptures uh, do that. And I'm I'm pleased to say they they seem to. Um, uh, yeah, it's just I, I just hope it makes them think about the environment and, and feel happier about where they're at, and maybe it just breaks the monotony from worrying about the mortgage and you know the kids at school and all that kind of stuff. And that, that the day is just a bit brighter when when they've seen these these sculptures. Uh, they see them a lot and they start to think about the deeper side of it. They all have, you know, different narratives behind them. If they start to think about that, it starts to trigger some deeper meaning, and that's fantastic too. But as you say, if they're whizzing past at 70 miles an hour, you know, and, and they just it brightens their day, then that's good enough for me, and that's why I'm that's why I'm paid to do them. So um, it can be a tremendously uplifting thing, uh, especially for some of those uh, uh, areas where they've perhaps never had major sculpture works and I think it really does a fantastic job for society. My sincere thanks to my guest, sculptor Andy Scott. As noted earlier, he and his wife recently left his native land of Scotland to make a new home here in the USA. Interesting, like myself and so many others who have an affinity for Scotland and dream of moving there, having perhaps visited and fallen in love with the place, well, Andy and his wife fell in love with the USA after visiting here and decided to make their home here. They settled on Philly almost accidentally after ruling out Chicago as too cold and New York City as too expensive. Being on the East Coast was also critical given his ongoing works in Scotland and elsewhere. Scott says Philly is the best of both worlds, a big city that feels like a small town. He now has a studio there and continues to work on international commissions, but admits he looks forward to the day he lands some commissions here in America. I look forward to that day, too. For more on Scott and his work, check the links in our show notes at www.underthetartansky.scott. On a different note, I'm excited to share with you that this podcast is now a part of the weekly programming lineup of a new Glasgow-based online radio station, RadioHaver.com. Archived episodes of Under the Tartan Sky can be heard each Thursday at 3 p.m. GMT in Scotland, which is 7 to 10 a.m. across the time zones of the USA, moving from west to east. The station combines world-class music with a wide variety of great podcast programming all about Scotland. A link to Radio Haver is also found in our show notes. As always, if you enjoy the content that I generate here, the favor of a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or whatever your favorite listening app may be is always greatly appreciated. Until next time. I'm Glenn Moyer. Tapalave, I guess Alpa Cabra. Under the Tartan Sky is a production of Glenn L. Moyer Creative Communications. For show notes and more information on this and all Under the Tartan Sky episodes, please visit our website at www.underthetartansky.scot. Have an idea for a future episode? Well, get in touch via email at info at underthetartansky.scot. Visit and like our page on Facebook and follow us on Twitter, where our username is at underscore Tartan Sky. That's the underscore symbol Tartan Sky. And thank you for listening. Listening.